0: Germany's social market economy combines free markets with a strong welfare state.
1: It becomes the social democratic party. Yes, we can. Education, education, and education.
0: Hello and welcome to the Centre Think Tank's podcast, the Centrist podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will Barber-Taylor, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Patrick English, Associate Director in Political and, S- and Social Research Team at YouGov and YouGov's spokesperson on political research. Welcome to the podcast, Patrick.
1: Thanks for having me on. I'm really, really happy to be here.
0: It's great to have you on. Now, the first thing um, that I'd like to ask you about is in relationship to um, the current state of polling. Now, at the moment, we're seeing Conservatives losing uh, support to both Labour and the Liberal Democrats in polling. Now, there will be some Conservatives who will say that this is just a, you know, midterm uh, blues, as it were, and that the Conservatives will be able to get their poll lead back at a later date, whereas obviously Labour and the Lib Dems are saying that this is a turning point and that they are on uh, tracks to make significant gains at the right. next general Election in in terms of the position of um, the major parties in relation to to polling at the moment. W- w- what are we seeing? Is it too early to to tell whether this is a, a change towards Labour and the Lib Dems, or could it just be a a, a blip, as some Conservatives are are hoping for and and, and arguing that it is?
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the it's a very very pertinent question right now is what well, what is this Labour polling lead. And how sticky is it? So at the moment, the polls kind of will give you anything between a a three to a sort of 12 point lead for Labour. And that is now sort of we're getting quite some divergence in the polls because of varying experiments that are going on in the industry now about how you treat people who answer don't know to vote intention questions, and how you model turnout and how you model them on response. So at the minute, there's quite some variation. But there is a, a consistent theme across all the polling is that Labour do have a lead. And that lead, kind of if you're looking at a normal distribution, is probably anywhere around sort of 6 7%. Now, we are in the midterm, of course, and governments always suffer in midterm. Governments always drop in the polls, the opposition, the main opposition party always gets ahead in the polls. Sometimes that lead can be up to 20%
0: for
1: opposition parties. So if we're looking at it in the context of is this a big sticky lead that Labour are going to walk into the next general election with? Well, probably not, because we've seen parties at 20%. Uh, they're then going to lose the next general election as opposition party. So it's a really, really tough act. Removing incumbents is difficult. It gets slightly easier the longer they've been in, but of course, with modern British politics, the Conservative Party that's been in for the past two years is extraordinarily different to the Conservative Party that was in 2010. And that's as true of the people that are in it as with the voters who support it. So it's a different electoral coalition, a different kind of set of people. So for all intents and purposes, you might even argue it's a different party. Mm-hmm. However, this polling at the minute is is much more than midterm blues. It's not simply a blip. It's been sustained since January, and the polling rating for the Conservatives, for Boris Johnson has been slipping and coming down and down and down for about a year now. We've seen a big slide in their ratings for almost a year. And what's underpinning all of this isn't simple sort of frustration with policy or kind of getting bored with the incumbents as the traditional midterm blue seems to be. It's very much character-based. It's about Boris Johnson and how unpopular he is mm. with the electorate and with a significant portion of 2019 Conservative voters. Anywhere between 30 and 40% think he should go. that's a big number of your own voters who backed you two years ago two and a half years ago saying now that they think that you should get out so this is very much more uh, something more than mid-term blues however if we look kind of historically where Labour are right now in the general election cycle we would in any other circumstance say that is absolutely not enough to say that they're going to go win the next election or indeed that the little Democrats are going to go on and have a fantastic election We need to see a little bit more, I think, and we need to see a bigger polling lead if that's going to sustain through. And when we start asking questions, not just like, you know, when when we ask vote intention questions right now, a lot of people are interpreting that as do I like the government? Yes, no. Mm When we come to elections, the question flips. It becomes, who do I want to run the country? Do I like the opposition? Yes, no. And that's a much different question. So Labour need a polling lead of the size and stickiness that will survive that transition, that flipping the question, and actually deliver them a general election result. And based on the numbers right now, I don't think that's by any stretch of the imagination guaranteed.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And one of the things, I mean, we've mentioned the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats there. One thing that has been proposed by the Liberal Democrats is some sort of, like, electoral pact, um, mm-hmm. a, a, whether it be a formal or or an informal um, pact between Labour and the Lib Dems. Now, that seems to have, in 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 some way, in terms of tactical voting, helped both parties in Wakefield and Tifton and Hoyton. But do you think that this is something that could realistically... Um, work in, in in a general election given mm. tactical voting didn't in, in of itself particularly help um labor and the lib dems at the last election where it where it was certainly um promoted quite a bit. Yes
1: yeah, so so, I think that's a very important point. In the 2019 general election we saw opportunities certainly for Labour and Liberal Democrat voters to tactically vote for one another. Didn't really happen. We also saw a very formal, very public pact between the Liberal Democrats, the Greens and Vlad Cumber uh, in the sort of United Remain alliance. And there's no real evidence that that helped any parties at all. It certainly didn't give them any seat wins that they wouldn't otherwise have already got anyway. Um, voters are very complex animals. They're complex creatures. And it's, it's not simply the case that you can say to a voter who supports Liberal Democrats, ah, the Liberal Democrats are out. Go vote for Labour now, because a few of them will say, Well, actually, I'm far more on the conservative end of the spectrum. I just, you know, I feel like a bit more of a Lib Dem right now, and I certainly am never going to vote Labour. So you might find that some people go from Lib Dems to Conservatives rather than Lib Dems to Labour. Uh, and so I think it's it's the tactical voting usually uh, is, is something we don't pick up all that much at general elections. We have seen a lot of it lately. As you mentioned, in by-elections and also in the local elections and also in the Scottish Parliament elections last year as well, there was a lot of evidence that the Best Place Unionist Party was receiving quite a lot of tactical votes against the SNP at the constituency level. So I think it is something that's coming more and more into the voter psyche, but we're starting from a very low baseline there. So if we're looking for arrangements or ideas that might help the Democrats and Labour to sort of take extra seats against Conservatives, probably the most effective way to do that is going to be through non-aggression pacts rather than trumpeting formal arrangements, which comes with its own risks, doesn't always work anyway, and there's limited evidence historically that it benefits you all that much. So I think certainly some sort of non-aggression pacts, some very um, early voter education, they're traditionally quite good at that with the bar charts and what have you. Yeah. <laughs> talk to them yeah. about how accurate they are, but the message they're conveying is often fairly sound and is often quite well received by voters, particularly in those by-election contests. Um, so I think there is probably some merit to be had in some kind of arrangement along those lines, but a formal pact, I think, is is very risky and there's no evidence that the reward that is uh, potentially on offer is worth the risk, I would say. Mm -hmm. Now, um, something that
0: the uh, Liberal Democrats have certainly been uh, suggesting would be be part of uh, any deal between them and the Labour Party if there was a a hung parliament or or a minority Labour administration uh, would be a support for proportional representation, some form of change uh, Mm. to the voting system. Now, I mean, what's your sense in terms of how much... Uh, voters know about the the sort of suggestions as to the change of the voting system, and also how popular they are with with those voters who know about them. Do you think that there's any real enthusiasm at the moment for some sort of um, large-scale change to the way that we vote in general elections?
1: Yeah, very good question. There's kind of three in there, I think. One is, are people enthusiastic for change uh, another is how popular are the things that people might be enthusiastic for and then the other is you know um what kind of i guess political will is there for it um what i would say is that those who are uh, aware of the various opportunities different voting systems tend to be quite favorable toward them now that's because they're kind of people that are very politically engaged, they tend to be the kind of people that are frustrated with the current system and therefore sort out alternatives, Mm -hmm. and they therefore are also people, uh, people with very high political interest and engagement across the board. Those people do tend to be quite open and quite supportive of alternative voting measures. And generally speaking, if you go to the public and say, would you like a surprise, surprise, you know, say a fairer voting system or one which reflects the, the vote across the country, the voters are generally very supportive of that. Now, however, this does not mean that, as we saw with the alternative vote referendum, that they're willing to go to the polls or willing to go to parties and demand that that's going to happen. I think any referendum or any kind of campaign which, which, um, Focused exclusively on changing the voting system would would have quite a tough time turning people out and turning enough uh, sort of people out who are kind of on the fence or don't really know about these issues in support of changing the voting system. Any kind of change in British politics is a hard sell, right? You have to have a very, very strong case for it. So... Certainly, I think there's there's scope in this maneuver, and certainly there's no great enthusiasm for the current British British political system. The British public at all don't really think that politics works well. They don't trust politicians, they don't trust politics in general. So if you come at it as an angle of, well, you know, you don't you don't like the system, here's an idea that might help improve that and change the system, there might be some purchase there. But if you kind of ask a flat out question in a referendum, would you like to change to a new voting system? I think the uh, AV referendum and the current polling evidence would give you a, a sort of sharp shot in the arm if you think there's going to be a clamoring for a sudden change. But there are definitely routes to it, I think, and definitely avenues open through public opinion and the way it could be framed to to, to make that case, certainly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: Um, w- one thing that also has been um, brought up in in recent times, and, and particularly in the run up to uh, the last general election, was the idea of a of a new centrist party, a party that was in some way uh, separate from Labour or the Liberal Democrats. And of course, there were all sorts of um, groups in the run up to the twenty nineteen uh, general election: Change UK, the Independent Group, Renew. Etc., mm. do you think that there was ever enough public support for a new centrist party like them, or mm. do you think that they were always doomed to fail from the start?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, I think. But support can mean many things right so i um, um might be figuring me if i'm wrong but i, I believe when change uk sort of first burst onto the scene the first poll that was taken after they uh they arrived had them on about 15 percent of vote intention. that's not insignificant that's exactly the same proportion of the vote that ukip were looking at around their sort of peak of their powers in in elections so if that were to be replicated and it were to be concentrated geographically better than the ukip vote a la the liberal democrat vote currently well certainly there would be scope and there would be would be would have been a place, I guess, for that party in British politics. The problem is while the public are kind of, of, of again, they're not satisfied with the current state of democracy, the current parties aren't particularly popular, there's no politician that you can say has a massive positive rating, there's no great enthusiasm for what's going on offer now. I think the political system. And the, the the apparatus around it, such as the kind of the way that the the we sort of have the discussion set up in the media, even the polling, makes it very, 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 very difficult for a new party to come in and enter the fray and really make effective change. UKIP would be probably the last great example of a party that were able to do that. But of course, you know, then they weren't a new party at that time. Mm-hmm. Been around for a while, and their predecessor parties has been around for a while as well. They just managed to capture, slash onto an issue, and really become a vehicle for voters who were very frustrated with that and sort of wanted a new type of politics. So, if I think for a centrist party to come through and and do a UKIP but better, and also sort of consistently win seats and not fall away into the abyss as soon as a single issue is 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 resolved, if you like. Um, I think there would need to be some kind of hot rod, thorny issue on that centrist plane that you could really tap into, and really make a campaign around, really kind of make a, a voter representation appeal. Look, we're the party that are there for you on this. On Brexit, that was very difficult to do because you already had parties, such as the Democrats, such as the Greens, and then belatedly Labour, who were saying, OK, we are the party of Remain." And that made it very difficult for Change UK to really have a, a an appeal that made sense to voters. Their appeal then simply became, we're also for change, and we're also for remain, and we're also not the same as those other people that you don't like because of anti-Semitism or whatever, or being too left-wing. And the voters would look at that and say, well, yeah, maybe, but, you know, we have already got the little Democrats or, mm. you know... the left left thing doesn't really bother me too much, I'm going to vote Green, which is what a lot of sort of centrist and centre-right voters sort of are doing in a minute, particularly in council elections. So I think, are all new parties doomed to fail? No, I I think that's that's, that's not a truism. But there has to be a very certain set of specific conditions for a new party to emerge, particularly a new party at the centre, which is the ground that, you know, until, well maybe casting aside 2016 to up until now, parties are always clamouring for that ground anyway. So, uh, yeah, I don't I don't think they were always doomed to fail. I think just the job they had and the job any party has that's new and kind of finding a new appeal on the scene is incredibly, incredibly difficult simply because of the way our politics are set up. And that's probably uh, uh, in no small part down to the voting system as well. But mm-hmm. really makes it incredibly difficult for new mm-hmm. parties to come in and, and, and make any real waves.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I'd like to turn on to some more um, policy issues. Now, um, grammar schools are obviously mm-hmm. something that there is a, a, a certain quite a high level of um, public support for, even, even though it's often very difficult um, from children to get into grammar mm-hmm. schools. Why do you think that there is this public support um, for grammar schools when there is this sort of like... Um, divergence between the amount of people who support it, but then the amount of people whose
1: children actually manage to get in uh, to mm. grammar schools? Yeah, that's, that, that's that's a great question. We have, uh, we, have, we do do polling on grammar schools, of course, and what we tend to find is that as you say, there's 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 no real support for the abolition of grammar schools, and uh, what we also find is that people tend to believe they do make a difference, mm-hmm. and they do offer an opportunity for children to do better. And we also find that people tend to believe that if they went to a grammar school when they didn't, that their life would have been improved by now. Mm-hmm. So I think what I would put the support for grammar schools down to is that I think the public genuinely believe that they offer a, a better sort of route for education. A, a better education overall and therefore they're kind of they don't want to be seen to or, or perhaps they don't want to at all kind of deny that or take that mm-hmm. away and say well actually these schools do quite a good job at educating and you know even if I don't get into it or my child doesn't get into it you know maybe maybe their children will get into mm-hmm. it or maybe my friend's children will get into it and it offers them a, a better route through education so I think British British public opinion and British politics more broadly in society kind of does view itself as quite meritocratic right if you work hard if you do sort of the best you can if you take your opportunities you will be rewarded I think grammar schools are a a function of that in in British public opinion ethos if you like that you know if your kid is smart if they work hard they apply themselves they get into the grammar school and then that gives them a a leg up in life and I think that's kind of from an equality point of view you might say well that's quite problematic but in terms of the overall uh, let's say, the vibe of British public opinion, the vibe of British society, that's not really something they, they prioritise too much. It's much more about that meritocratic state, and I think grammar schools represent a component of that, which the British public don't really fancy getting rid of.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think that there is a distinction in the way that people view um, grammar schools to private schools, to public schools, in the sense that, as you say, that there is an emphasis on grammar schools being uh, more meritocratic mm. and um, a- allowing people to climb up uh, you know, the, the the ladder of education and the ladder of society. Whereas um, private schools, public schools are often seen as just an enclave of the rich, that they're uh, mm. simply, um, you know, you, you can buy into them rather than having achieve entrance into you. Is, is there a distinction then between the two in, in the way that people think about them?
1: Yes, certainly. Sort of private schools and private school education is 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 viewed more dimly uh, than, than grammar schools for precisely the reasons I would imagine that you outline. Is that you you can buy into that. That's not something that's necessarily at all uh, down to hard work or, or, or doing well or whatever. It's simply a matter of resources, and um, so. Yeah, I think I think I think that's 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 very much the case, and that does that again goes outside of that meritocratic progress, work hard, pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of attitude that surrounds British public opinion. So yeah, I, 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 I'd i I'd say that was certainly true.
0: Mm-hmm. I'd like to now turn to um, the monarchy and, and the royal family because, of course, this year has been um, the jubilee year, uh, the Queen has celebrated uh, a, a, another Jubilee, a Diamond Jubilee um, and I, I was wondering, in, in terms of the support for republicanism republicanism is obviously mm. at the moment not something that is greatly supported mm. um in the uk in comparison to the monarchy do you think that this is something that is tied up specifically with the queen as an individual this lack of support for republicanism or do you think that this is a sign that regardless of who the monarch is there will be always a sort of like a, a general favor towards them as opposed mm. to um, Republicanism, or, or, or do you think that that's something that could quite easily uh, change?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think there's definitely a baseline monarchist tradition in the British public right now, which, as you would not, will not be surprised if, to know or find out, is a It's quite strongly with age. Uh, mm. So the older you are, the more likely you are simply to support the monarchy, regardless of who the monarchy is. But certainly, the younger you go down the scale, it does appear to be much more driven by the current monarch, Queen Elizabeth, who is very popular who kind of is, is able to kind of cross generational divides with her appeal and is generally not seen as offensive or um, problematic by any any sort of sub, sub, sub section of society, broadly speaking. Now, uh, I do think that will change uh, with, with the change of monarch. Um, we can see this in the polling data. Hypothetical questions are always very tricky and people always tend to work with state opinions and preferences and hypothetical questions. However... When we ask, you know, to what extent would you continue to support or oppose the monarchy or be in favor of abolishing the monarchy if we put Prince Charles in there, for example, or some other monarch, we do see support for abolition or support uh, increase or support for the monarchy reduce. So certainly there is a baseline level, but then the, the, the current monarch, Queen Elizabeth, does bring that right up through sort of her personal appeal. So I think certainly. Uh, as and when the monarchy is changed, uh, there will be renewed discussion and sort of a, a reset of public opinion on this issue without that kind of figurehead that is able to cross generations and cross social groups with popularity. And I think the conversation will move a couple of steps along at that point. But for now, certainly there's, as you say, there's absolutely no appetite for the abolition of the monarchy. And there's, there's uh, while certainly some members of the royal family are deeply unpopular... Overall, uh, there is is fairly strong support for them. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, I'd like to now just um, briefly turn to the issue of Brexit. Keir Starmer has recently um, made a major speech setting out his vision of what the uh, Labour Party should do in relation to Brexit. And, of course, there are continual um, discussions over the Northern Ireland Protocol and attempts by the government uh, to change the position that Northern Ireland is in relation Mm. to the EU and, and the rest of the UK. In, in terms of a sense of how popular Brexit is as, as it is um, at the moment versus how popular a potential second referendum and, and, and Britain potentially rejoining the European Union, what, what's your sense in terms of the public's general mood in regard to Brexit? Is it a sense that it's perhaps a failure but it's a failure more linked to the incumbent government rather than the idea as a whole or is it view it as a as, as a failure overall and perhaps there should mm. be some sort of like reversal of it
1: mm. yes and um, good questions i i think three three sort of parts of public opinion data will kind of answer that question one is that people think that brexit is going badly undoubtedly, they think it has been a failure so far. It has not improved their lives. And the the, the current arrangements of of, of Brexit and the way it's being handled by the government is is, is very poor indeed. By a margin of around sort of 60 to 30, we find that people think it's going badly as opposed to well. Secondly, uh, we are seeing a slightly increasing lead for um, Brexit being the wrong thing to do versus the right thing to do in our tracker question. We're, so we repeatedly asked the question, as we do with other government doing well or badly with Brexit? Do you think Brexit was the right or the wrong thing to do? Uh, we are seeing wrong now with about a 10 to 12 to maybe even 15-point lead. That has opened up and emerged this year. Now, the figures aren't dramatic, considering how unpopular Brexit is as a policy issue right now, and how unpopular the government is, and all of the world publicized problems with Brexit, we actually haven't seen a, a massive change in that public opinion, but particularly in the public opinion uh, for quite some time, and general replace, gen, generational replacement alone can explain some of that shift. So there hasn't been a huge amount of people changing their minds on Brexit which I think is key to the third passage of public opinion, which I think answers the question, which is there's no appetite at the minute to rejoin the EU. And certainly Kierstammer's instincts on putting that quite front, uh, front and centre and quite plain spoken is a good one in terms of where public opinion is right now. If a party went into a general election campaign to rejoin the EU, a national party seeking to win the election... That would not go down well. And it certainly would not go down well with all those leave voters in the Northern Midlands who deserted the Labour Party either to not vote or to go vote for the Brexit Party or the Conservatives. Would not play well there. So the public opinion, I think, is 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 certainly not anti-Brexit insofar as they're clamoring to rejoin the European Union, but it is certainly anti-the Brexit we currently have. Um we haven't really polled too specifically on various elements of, the, of Brexit deals or Brexit policies, because then you get into territory that simply most voters most of the time have much better things to do than to sit and think about the kind of things we'd love them to do in a poll, right? So you just get lots of don't know answers. But certainly, will the government's taxi right now to perhaps push an even harder Brexit. Or to sort of sort of get rid of some of the ties would not really align too well with what we're seeing in the polls right now. What we're seeing in the polls when we ask people about problems with Brexit is they think it's made them poorer. They think that it's made a lot of the problems that they're facing now worse. So a kind of a a Brexit solution which kind of puts even more barriers up or or makes those problems even more difficult certainly isn't going to tap into the frustration with the public right now. I think the public wants to see some kind of, if not reversals, some rearrangements of of various protocols and various um, accesses or inaccesses to various European features that will make things a bit smoother and make their lives a bit easier, particularly with the cost of living crisis going on right now. So I think that's kind of where the... The, the middle ground is, if you like, at the moment that, that the Labour Party should be looking for is certainly not rejoining the European Union. But if there are things that they can do around the edges, which kind of chew away the, a lot of the frustrations and certainly the economic facets of the problems that people are facing right now with Brexit, that would be a popular move. But that's going to be tricky, very tricky indeed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, we're coming towards the end of the podcast, Patrick. Thank you
0: uh, once again for coming on. I have one final question for you, however. Now, uh, of, of course, um, you be conducting all sorts of polls at YouGov. Mainly your responsibilities are to do with political and social issues. But mm. if you could compel the public through whatever means to um give their honest opinion to just one polling question it doesn't matter how absurd it is or how um insane the potential responses are Mm. what question would you desperately want to know everybody in britain's opinion on
1: oh that's that's i like that that's very good we do kind of uh we have a process in, in yugo where we're, we kind of we're allowed to ask left field questions mm-hmm. and often they're kind of uh they're usually the source of the de- uh, source through like debates either within the team or sort of on twitter or we just see something and like that ah, i'd love i'd love to know what people think about that um so we've had some really really good good ones in the past um so i've got this there's Thing is, I don't want to be too boring here, so I don't want to be dug out for it. I need I need, I need to think of it, I need to think of a good one. Um, oh, what would a good one be? I don't want to ask a politicsy one either, because that's you know, that's that's too that's that's too predictable. <laughs> so we're ruling out boring and we're gonna rule out politics. Um oh, what would I like to ask? What would I like to ask? I I I th- I think a, 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 a nice one. I'm gonna go for a nice one. I'd, I'd want to know if people could play any any instrument in the world, what would it be? Because I imagine you get some, get some some real sort of left field ones going out there, like sort of those, those massive sort of tuba things. Yeah. I always wanted to play one of those, you know, just to be able to sort of walk on down the high street playing some ridiculous tunes on a tuba. So, uh, but I'd love to know what kind of percentage of people just pick, like, oh, guitar or drums, or, you know, if you get some really wacky ones, like oboes and stuff like yeah. that. You know? So that'll that be quite a fun one, I think. How many people want to be rock stars and how many people want to be, like, sort of musical hipsters in that regard? That'd <laughs> be quite fun.
0: I think that would be an excellent question and hopefully um, one that you will be able to ask soon. I'm, 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 <laughs> sure, I'm sure you, as you say, you would get some really interesting um, mm. responses to that. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast, Patrick. If people want to find out more about you and the work that you do, where should they go to find out more about you and your work?
1: Yeah, so the, the, the best the best two places will be uh, my sort of YouGov uh, profile page. If you kind of just Google my name and yougov that should come up and that will list all of the research articles I've ever done for YouGov. Uh, and you can also follow me on Twitter. So that's at PME underscore politics. I'm uh, fairly online there, fairly to vary depending on who you ask and uh, tend to sort of spew, sprout out a lot of stuff on that. So uh, yeah, either of those two. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's been great fun.
0: It's been excellent having you on. Thanks once again.